Have you noticed the Bunnings hardware ads? You know, the ones where the, the genuine shop assistants stand up and they talk about all the things you can buy at Bunnings. I guess the message is, we're not that big a business. We're interested in you. We're about ordinary people. We understand the ordinary person. In fact, we're almost like your friendly, local, independent hardware store, even though we bought them out years ago. Uh, lots of businesses do it, don't they? They advertise using ordinary people, genuine um, consumers rather than paid actors. I guess they're big companies trying to convince you that they're actually interested in ordinary people, in the, the normal person. I wonder sometimes whether we're tempted to think the same way about God, uh, that he's actually too big and too busy to be involved in the lives of normal people. I guess as we read the Old Testament, we can get a bit of that uh, impression. Uh, there are whole books about kings and nations and temples and city walls and exile and rescue. But Ruth is different. The message of Ruth is that God is interested in the ordinary details of ordinary lives of ordinary people. The lesson of Ruth, just like the lesson of the whole Bible, is that God is king. He's in control of everything. He is in control of planets and stars and oceans and weather and nations. But he's also the king of ordinary people, like you and me, as we do ordinary things making ends meet, struggling with family relationships, keeping a roof over our head. That's what we learn from the book of Ruth. It's a story about small details, about village life and gathering food and marriage and children and family. There are no famous or powerful people here. It's a story about ordinary people, nobodies. So let's have a look over the back fence into some ordinary people's lives. Uh, verse 1 begins, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The story begins in Israel. What's the time? It's when the judges ruled. And so the chronology is somewhere between 1400 and 1000 BC. But more than a date stamp, uh, this is describing the moral state of the nation as well. We're a couple of generations after the Jews had conquered Canaan. Uh, they're still trying to get rid of the last pockets of Canaanites from the land. Uh, Joshua is dead. For the most part, Israel's leaderless. And so the book of Judges describes a time of wickedness and violence and disobedience and faithlessness. And the chorus that's repeated through the book of Judges is that it's a time when there's no king in Israel and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There's no king. Uh, and more importantly, they don't recognise God as king, and so they basically do whatever they feel like doing. And perhaps you know the awful story that the book of Judges finishes with about the most horrendous sort of ways of people treating each other. And that's like the, 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 the culmination of what happens when people do what they feel like doing. And so that's when our story happens, that's the setting, that's the moral setting of this delightful story of Ruth and Naomi. The first detail we learn is that there's a famine in the land, and, and so as we think about that moral setting and the fact that there's a famine, we, we can't help wondering whether they're connected. Is this due to the people's abandoning of God and of doing what's right in their own eyes? Because in the Bible that often seems to be uh, connected 
that when people are not trusting God, he, he sends famine uh, to shake them up and to bring them back to himself. And so in the midst of this time of the judges and in the midst of the famine, our attention turns to one normal family struggling to put bread on the table. Uh, the irony is that they live in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, and yet there's no bread to be had. It's a little like living in surfer's paradise, but there's no surf. Or fisherman's point, but there's nothing biting. And so this man's solution is to leave Israel and to go to Moab. It's maybe 80 kilometres away. There's food there. And so that's another little hint that perhaps this famine in Israel is due to God's punishment on the nation. But rather than address the spiritual problem of the famine, this guy's just going to leave and he's just focusing on the material. He leaves behind God's people. He leaves behind... Uh, potential wives from God's people for his sons uh, and he goes to Moab, a a wicked people who serve another God. Uh, The irony is, in verse 2, we find out his name is Elimelech, which means my God is king. And yet he's acting anything but. God is his king. God is king over nations and families and food and famine and life and death, but this guy's solving his problems himself and walking away from his God. He wants to be king, and God doesn't matter. Uh, Names are significant. We've uh, come across Elimelech, but next we come across Naomi, whose name means pleasant or sweet. Maybe sweetheart would be a a, a good translation for us. His two sons are Marlon and Kilion. Uh, They're pretty uncommon names uh, today for a reason. Uh, They mean something like uh, sickly and whining. So there are good reasons why you don't see them appearing on the uh, most used birth names lists. Uh, And so we almost expect what's going to happen next. Once we find out that the sons are called sickly and whining, the family moves away to avoid starvation, but that doesn't work. Verse 3, Elimelech moves to Moab and he dies anyway. Uh, And Naomi is left with her two sons. They marry Moabite women called Orpah and Ruth, Uh, And then in verse 5, if we jump forward 10 years, the two sons die. So within five verses, uh, the family has been, they've moved country, they've been reduced back to Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, three widows, destitute in a foreign country. Things are not pleasant for Naomi, whose name means pleasant. Instead, they're rather bitter. No husband, no security, no children, no hope. What will they do? Well, things are not hopeless, of course, because it doesn't all depend on them. Who is the one who sides with the unimportant and the nobodies? Well, God. He always stands up for the hopeless and the helpless, for the widows and the orphans. So verse 6, Naomi hears that back in Israel, God has brought an end to the famine. The same God who'd caused the famine to begin with, the same God who's taken Elimelech and Marlon and Kilion, Uh, This same God brings the famine to an end. And so Naomi decides she'll return to Israel and the two daughters-in-law begin the journey. As they travel, Naomi turns to them and has some advice. Verse 8, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. 
She kisses them, and then they all weep. Her thinking is Israel is no place for the daughters-in-law. They won't just be widows with no family, they'll be foreign widows. And then to, to back up the argument, verse 11 to 13, Naomi says, like, let's be realistic, there's not much chance I'm going to remarry. And even if I did and had kids that very night, you're not going to wait till they grow up so that you can marry them. Our situation's hopeless. And so, verse 14, Orpah takes the sensible option and she heads back to Moab. But Ruth clings to Naomi. Can you picture it? And then Ruth gives this beautiful speech, a speech about loyalty and love and faithfulness. Verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. It's amazing, isn't it? There's nothing in this decision for Ruth. She's got every right to lead Naomi to fend for herself. And yet, in, in spite of what she will miss out on, she's showing loyalty and faithfulness and love. Not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God as well. Because now, he's her God too. And it's in Ruth's speech that we get hints about what we are to learn from this book. Firstly, in Ruth's speech, uh, we see a picture of how God is faithful to his people Israel. Uh, Ruth's promises here reflect something of God's covenant promises. Uh, Remember, this little jewel is in the midst of the blackness of the times of the judges. Uh, Surrounding Ruth and Naomi is the sinfulness and wickedness and unfaithfulness. And yet here we've got some faithful, good people. God is still at work, working in the lives of ordinary people like Naomi and Ruth. Do you see what Naomi prayed back up in verse 8? She prayed that God would show kindness to these Moabite girls. That word for kindness is loving kindness or, or covenant faithfulness. It's a big Bible word, hesed. It's particularly used about what God shows his people Israel, his covenant people. And Naomi is praying that God will show that sort of behaviour towards these Moabite Gentile women. He'll extend his wing of covenant blessing over these women. And the irony is that at a time when Israel is acting like anything but God's faithful people, it's this Gentile woman who's acting in a faithful way. She's showing Israel how to be faithful. Ruth was making covenant marriage promises to Naomi's family and she's going to keep them. Wherever Naomi goes, whatever happens, whoever she's with, Naomi is steadfast. Uh, Ruth is steadfast. And when Naomi prays for this Gentile woman, she prays that God would be faithful to her. And Ruth is also declaring that she'll be faithful to this God, uh, just as God is faithful to her. We see a little echo, a little hint of God's 
plan uh, right back from the time of Abraham uh, that he would be a blessing to all nations. Uh, And in Ruth, we're getting a little hint of that. While Israel is unfaithful, God is always faithful. And Ruth is an example of how he's keeping his promises. So, Ruth and Naomi, they return to Bethlehem, verse 19. The, the, the townsfolk are buzzing with excitement. Is it really you, Naomi? She's been gone for at least 10 years. And look at Naomi's answer. Don't call me Naomi. Don't, don't call me sweetheart or pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. There's another name we don't see appearing too much on the, on the birth list, do we? Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord's afflicted me. The Almighty's brought misfortune upon me. She sums up the last ten years, but she's also pointing the finger. She's also addressing who's brought all of that. Naomi's lost nearly everything. And so as the chapter comes to an end, we we start to think, well, how is God really being king here? What difference has Ruth, in all her faithfulness, uh, what difference has it made? Was it a bad decision? Everything has been turned bitter and empty. But it's not quite the end of the chapter, is it? Uh, Do you see how verse 22 finishes? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Just a tiny little phrase. It's not big, it's not overt, it's not a loud, obvious note, but that's really the tone of the whole book, isn't it? There's a little hope there. It's not always in the big, miraculous ways that God works. He doesn't just work with the nations and the successful and the rich and the powerful. God provides in ordinary ways for ordinary people. Despite all of Naomi's trials, she arrives home just as the barley harvest is beginning. What good luck. We think that way, don't we? Of course it's not luck. God is at work. And yet we often think about luck. Things fall into place in life and we think, well, that was lucky, wasn't it? Uh, We pray for rain and then rain falls and then we wonder, well, was it due to God or would it just have rained anyway? God's in charge of tomorrow and yet we worry about tomorrow. Things don't turn out the way we plan and we get disappointed rather than say, well, God brought it, I wonder what he's doing here. Or things do turn out the way we want and we're proud and we think, aren't I clever to make this thing come about rather than being grateful to the God who's king and who works all things. We treat the world as if we're king rather than God is king. We treat the world as if it's about luck and coincidence rather than God's sovereign hand, rather than Elimelech, my God is king. God provides for the ordinary needs of his people. We mustn't forget that his hand is at work in our ordinary details too, in his protection on the roads, in our health, in provision of jobs and money and food and housing. 
we're only at chapter one. We, we can't see the complete answer to, to Naomi's complaints about how God's worked yet. They're, they're still coming up. You'll have to come back next week to see a little more. But we do get a hint here in chapter one, don't we? God is working bad things for good. And that's true for us in our tough times. When difficult things happen and we wonder what God is doing, we don't get to see things completely. We only get to see chapter 1. But God sees all of it. God sees chapters 1 to 4. And so as you stand at the beginning of a new year, 2020, and, and you wonder, well, I wonder what this year's got in store, you can trust God. You may be worried or fearful or maybe excited about what this year holds. But God is at work. He promises to work all things for good, which may not be for your comfort or your wealth or your health. And he doesn't promise it's going to happen instantly. But he is God and he is full of loving kindness and faithfulness. And he also calls us to be kind and faithful as we express that faith. We show we trust him by being kind and faithful in the face of the difficulties. So Ruth's loyalty is a picture of God's faithfulness, but it's also a means by which God achieves his faithful purposes. Ruth's loyalty is an instrument for God to show his loyalty to his people. Let me explain what I mean. I'm not normally one who reads the last page of a mystery novel. There are one or two people in my family who do read the last page first. And I hate finding out the result of a football game. It completely spoils it if you know the result first. Isn't that right, Mark? Yes. But I'm going to make an exception here. If we turn to the last page of this story, over the page, the end of chapter 4, almost the last sentence, we do see the way the story turns out. If it hadn't been for Ruth's loyalty here in chapter 1... That's where the story would have stopped. She wouldn't have married Boaz. She wouldn't have given birth to Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered King David. Without Ruth's loyalty here in chapter 1, King David's line wouldn't have culminated in Jesus. God used that simple act of Ruth's loyalty to work out his loyalty to his people, Jesus. Would Ruth have been loyal to Naomi if she'd known how things were going to turn out? Probably. But she didn't know, did she? She didn't know how things were going to turn out. For all she knew, she was heading back to poverty. She didn't know any of these things were going to happen, but she did it anyway. If she hadn't come back from Moab, she wouldn't have been part of God's plans. Uh, for an ordinary person, which finished in such an extraordinary event, the birth of Jesus, Ruth's decision to be obedient and faithful were made harder because she didn't know how things were going to turn out. Let, let's imagine the story of Ruth was doing the rounds during the time of King David or King Solomon. It's probably pretty likely for when the story was written, uh, explaining where their kings came from and why they are living in such times of prosperity. Uh, for these original hearers, Ruth was a story about where they came from, about why 
peace was the result of God's covenant faithfulness and how it was the result of ordinary people being faithful. And so the lesson for the people of King David's time was that they need to display that same loyalty that Ruth showed in their present. That was the way to keep the covenant blessings of God's people living in God's land. God was at work, uh, and God works out his purposes when God's people live faithfully, like their God. That was the lesson for the Jewish hearers, and it's the lesson for us today. God works out his purposes when God's ordinary people live faithfully, as we deal faithfully with each other, as we're truthful and honest and generous and caring God works out his purposes through us. As our neighbours see us, as they experience our faithfulness with them and as they see it in others, they begin to understand what God is about. They begin to understand the faithful, loving, truthful God we serve. And so every day you have dozens of ordinary moments, dozens of decisions Uh, where you can be faithful and truthful and good and generous. Opportunities to follow and imitate God. Sometimes we're disobedient, sometimes we make the wrong choice, we fail to do the right thing and the chance for God to use us passes us by. But we can never tell how God might use those ordinary acts of obedience, those simple moments In May 1934, a Charlotte, North Carolina farmer lent one of his fields to some businessmen. That was the choice he had. They said, we need a field to have a day of prayer. And he said, use paddock number three. Uh, They wanted to devote a day of prayer for Charlotte because of the depression and the spiritual apathy in the city and they were planning an evangelistic campaign. During that day of prayer, their leader, Vernon, Vernon Patterson prayed that God would raise out of Charlotte someone to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Later that year, September 1934, an evangelist named Mordecai Fowler preached and shattered the church-going complacency of Charlotte. God answered the prayer. The farmer who'd lent the field was called Franklin Graham. His son Billy became a Christian during those meetings. And Billy grew up to become the most famous evangelist the modern world has known and God used him to bring hundreds of thousands of people to himself. And it all began with a simple, ordinary act of obedience on the part of a farmer who let some businessmen use a field. God works out his purposes when his ordinary people live faithfully for their God. Will you let him use you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to see your hand at work, uh, not only in the good things, uh, but also the difficult things, the trials, the tests. Uh, Help us to trust you uh, and help us to show that trust by living faithfully and truthfully with each other and those around us that we might reflect and imitate and be part of your plans for your world. Amen.